uh, I do want to invite you in a moment to get your Bibles open um, to Luke chapter 5. But even before that, would you open your Bibles to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, or 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me get mine open as well. And while you're turning there, let me tell you um, why I am actually telling you the wrong passage. Isn't that funny? What a great pastor. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I was right the first time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now let me tell you why we're going to start out reading this and then we're going to get right into the message that we prepared for you today. John Owen was a Puritan writer, a fantastic, brilliant mind. He wrote a book that really is um, based on this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And the premise of John Owen's book, and it's one that I've been trying to study. It's a book that you, you have to read in bite-sized nuggets to try to digest. It's so brilliant. It's so deep. It's so powerful. His premise, however, is this, that if we want to grow, if we want to mature, if we want to become like Christ, John Owen argued, and I believe he's right, then we need to learn to behold. Uh, We need to learn to grasp and understand. We need to learn to lay hold of the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the more that we ponder, the more that we learn, the more that we see, the more that we understand the person of Jesus, we will be changed from, well, it says here, one degree of glory to another. Now, let me read it. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And here's what God's word said. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I don't know about you, that's terribly exciting for me. It's not really so much that you try to self-discipline. It's not really so much that you try harder with moralistic devotion and become more like Christ. Listen, that really does not work. That leads to... Well, at least frustration at worst failure. Really, if you want to become more like Jesus, the Bible says, and John Owen writes, then it is to lay hold of, to grasp, to see, to understand, to fix your eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. And there will be in you and there will be in me a transformation one degree of glory to another, ever more like Christ. Now, that being said, this is expressly why we are doing the sermon series that we are called The Summer in the Sun, as we look at the gospel of Jesus according to Luke. It's all about seeing Jesus. It's about every week fixing our eyes on the Lord and the glory of the Lord. So as I'm about to unpack a very familiar passage in Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to keep showing you glimpses of Jesus 
well, listen, it's not really uh, up to the preacher to do this work by himself. It's our job cooperatively, not only with each other, but with the Spirit of God. So as I preach, I want to encourage you to lay hold of what you're seeing in Jesus, to fix your eyes on the person of Jesus as we walk through this passage, and to grasp how amazing and glorious the Son of God really is. And watch what happens in your life. All right, here we go. Can you stand with me? Luke chapter 5. I hope you've got your Bibles open. We are a church that just simply preaches God's Word. We're not really going to be preaching anything else ever. It is God's Word that is living and active And as you open uh, that Bible, and as you look with me at chapter 5, verse 27, would you please follow along? Verse 27, after this he went out, Jesus did, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That concludes the reading of our word. Now we get to really go deep in it. You may have a seat, and let's see what God is going to say to us in his word. We're going to look at the call of Jesus to a tax collector named Levi, who would later go by the more familiar name, Matthew. He is the man who wrote the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew. We're actually going to look at it from the gospel of Luke because Matthew was so humble. He leaves out a lot of details about his own call that Luke and Mark include. So we're going to look at Luke's version of his call. And I'll look at verse 27 again with me. Let's all be in God's word together. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, let me pop this out for you. Let me colorize this so you can understand just how amazing this really is. Because Israel hated and despised nobody more than a tax collector. Nobody. In fact, you get a little bit of a glimpse in this by listening to the prayer of a Pharisee in Luke 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself, that's a Jewish pastor, stood by himself and prayed this prayer. And this is, we get to eavesdrop on the prayer that he prayed. Why? Because, well, it's not very difficult because they would often pray out loud so that they could gather attention to themselves. They would Virtually shout these prayers. And here's his prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. And then he points while he's praying. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. 
Did you notice that he waited until the end to talk about the tax collector? Nobody in Israel was hated more than a tax collector. You see, they were viewed as traitors. They were not even allowed to come into a synagogue to worship. Their testimonies, because they were looked at as thieves, their testimonies were not accepted or allowed into the Jewish court system. They were viewed on the level of a pig or a prostitute. And Jewish rabbis even gave the people of Israel permission to lie to tax, tax collectors because they viewed tax collectors as, as lying all the time. Go ahead, you can lie. In fact, it's righteous to lie to them, according to the leaders of the Jewish people. See, here's what was going on. Rome would take a census, not unlike what our government does today. In fact, this is what got Joseph and Mary moving to get to Bethlehem. This was a tax reassessment. They were redistricting, basically, or assessing population so that they could get accurate taxes from these areas. So they would take a census and they would assess to a district a fixed tax figure. You've got this many people living here. We just took the census. Here's how much we expect to receive. And then they would sell franchises to the highest bidders, giving them who won the bid the right to collect the taxes. And these franchise owners of tax collectors met that quota, and then whatever they could gain beyond it, they would pocket it. They would gain the surplus for their own money. All right, now that's a little interesting, but we got to go a little deeper in this. There's two types of tax collectors for the Jewish people. There's two types. Here's the first one, the Gabai. The Gabai collected general taxes, you know, land, property, income. Uh, they were referred to as the poll tax or a registration tax. Now listen, if you want to know how much, here's what was the tax amount in the first century. Income tax was 1% of your earning. Property taxes were 10% of your grain harvest and 20% of your fruit and wine. The goodbye collected those. And then you had the moks. That's the second level of tax collectors. And the moks they collected the import duties, the tollway fees, the boat docking fees, the business license fees, anybody along the roadway and they came to a tax booth like we get on the highway for a toll booth. Well, the moaks sat in those toll booths and assessed a tax for you to have the right to even walk on a Roman road. And this tax collector, the moaks, they had almost limited, or rather unlimited latitude in their taxing powers. They could attach a tax to virtually any article, any activity. They could tax your boat. They could tax the fish that you caught. They could tax the dock that you unloaded your boat at. And they would sit in these booths along these busy roads. They could tax your donkey, your servants, your goods. And if you couldn't pay, then the tax collector might offer you a loan at an exorbitant interest that you had to repay it. And they would make sure you paid it because they would have uh, henchmen, they had mobs, and they had the Roman military to back them up. So they had the power of Rome to enforce their orders. 
Now, are you getting a little bit of idea? I'm just going deep into the backdrop here for a moment. Are you getting a little bit of an idea or an understanding why the Jewish people hated the tax collectors and none of them more than the second level, the mokes? Now, I'm not even done yet with that because there's two kinds of mokes. There's the great mokes and then there's the small mokes. So let's, let's uh, kind of dive into that briefly. The great mokes hired other people to collect their taxes. In other words, they had people working for them. They had a larger franchise. And what, what that would do is it would protect their reputation among their own countrymen. They wouldn't get quite the amount of hatred from the Jewish people. But then they're the small mokes. And they did their own assessing. They did their own collecting. And therefore, they were in constant contact with members of the community. They often and usually worked for the great mokes. They were the ones interfacing with the merchants and with the travelers passing along their way. Now, we're going to get back into the story because Levi was a small mokes who was sitting at the tax booth personally collecting taxes. He worked for or reported to a great mokes. And here's an example of one of them, Zacchaeus. Do you remember him? Remember that wee little man who was up in a uh, tree down near Jericho and Jesus called him down and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner today. Come on down. It totally changed Zacchaeus's life. He was a great mokes. It was as Jesus and his disciples, they're near Capernaum, they're walking along the Roman road, they stop at the toll station of Levi, and verse 27 says that Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, we're going to really start looking at this with a lot more application, but let me give you a little bit of a primer, or at least let me give you a little bit of encouragement. You're probably familiar with this story. You know the story, you know the saying rather as well as I do, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, it doesn't mean a malevolent hatred always. Sometimes it means you just sort of disregard it. It just sort of gets reduced down to the common and it doesn't impact you as much. Well, don't let the familiarity with this story cause you to miss its impact. Levi is about to give up a wealthy career. He's about to let go of financial security. He's about to turn in his franchise and it will be permanent in order to follow Jesus and serve his own people who hate him and despise him. In fact, he writes a gospel to help his own people. The gospel of Jesus, according to Matthew, was written for and to the Jewish people. So don't let this impact not get noticed in your heart. We're seeing a radical, which we're about to see, a radical change come to a despised, hated man in Israel. And I want to show you a few points on it. Number one, exactly what I just said. The call of Jesus brings radical change. Now, this is true whenever Jesus calls somebody to salvation. But we're going to see it in Levi. Let's look at it again. In Levi, 
made him a great feast in his house. He left the toll booth. He gave up on his franchise. He holds a party. And who's, who was invited? And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. There's a whole lot of tax collectors in the area of Capernaum. A lot of them. Levi, who is about to go by another name, Matthew, is about to be given a new name that means gift of God. If you know anybody, my son Matthew, who was leading worship, if you know a Matthew, then you know that means gift of God. So here we've got a man who by birth, now watch this, listen to this, don't, 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 um, don't miss what I'm about to tell you. Levi, by birth, that's his birth name, named after the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi was the only tribe that remained faithful to God when Moses went up on the mountain. They did not worship the calf, so the golden calf. So God gives to this tribe, Levi, a special blessing. They were given then the rights and the duty and the responsibilities to be priests of Yahweh. Now he's named this tax collector, after this glorious tribe, which means, friends, he should have been by calling a priest. He should have been by calling a priest. Somewhere along the line, the Bible does not tell us when, where, or how. He forsook that calling. He went a different direction. It became a tax collector. Now, let's just surmise a little bit. We don't know. But perhaps the lure of worldly wealth is what caused him to forsake his call. Maybe the power is what lured him away. Again, we do not know, but have you ever considered that Levi squandered that call? He began to be a corrupt franchise owner to serve Rome and exploit his fellow Israelites. The man who did nothing but take was changed into a gift of God and this is exactly what Jesus does. Now, we've gotta be really, really careful. It's, I'm telling you what, I don't know if you're like me, but I get so excited when I learn the cultural backdrop of the Bible. And that sometimes, if I'm not really disciplined, can overshadow what God really wants to say to me. So friends, let's bring it into your own personal life. Where can you see the radical call of Jesus on you? Now, listen, you won't see it if you think that you were always a pretty good person. You know, you just needed a little bit of help to get over the hump. If you think that you were a pretty respectable person, I mean, you're an American. You've done pretty well in life, worked hard in your career. And you know what? Yeah, I'm so glad that God saved me, but, you know, it's not radical. Well, then you don't understand who you were before Christ called you. And who you were and who I was before Christ called you was someone whom Ephesians 2 says was dead in 
sins. We were spiritually and morally corrupt. We had no ability to reach out to God. If God did not first reach to us, we never would have responded to him. We were fine where we were. We didn't need just a little cleaning up. We needed a radical transformation. We needed a new heart, a new name, a new position, a new nature. That's every single person. So now as you're beginning to look a little maybe a uh, little bit differently at Levi's call, don't forget to sweep your own call into this. You can attach it because it looks the same for you. He saves us, Jesus does, and repurposes us. And the Apostle Paul put it best, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you get the language that Paul used? Created in Christ Jesus. We were recreated Christian. And we had to be. We didn't need just a new paint job. We didn't need just a little bit of help. We needed a radical transformation and Christ is the one that gives it, gives it. Well, let me ask you a few questions, and I want you to think deeply of this, and I don't know, I know a lot of your stories, and some of you know mine, but I, I don't know all of your stories, and I certainly don't know them, obviously, as well as you do. So let me ask a few questions, just to get you really thinking about this. What was your life like before Christ called you, saved you? Who were you? before Jesus saw you and called you to follow him. You know that word saw Levi in that tax booth? It means to gaze intensely and long with a purpose. So who were you? What was your life like before Jesus laid his saving eyes on you and called you out of that life? All right, well, some of our testimonies, mine included, I was not a drug dealer. I was not a murderer. Um, that's arguable. I got pretty angry at my mom and dad. Bible says that it's like murder. That is murder. But I wasn't a physical murderer. I wasn't even a, tr a drug taker. But I was just as much a sinner as anybody else. And I was just as lost as anybody else. And even though I was pretty young when the Lord called me to salvation, I was already, already totally depraved. I was already corrupted in every part of my being. I was already someone that had defied God and that had cosmically said to him, I don't want your way. I want my way. I like my throne better than your throne. And it was coming out in my attitude. It was coming out in my thoughts. It was coming out in my words, coming out in my behaviors. I was as lost as the worst sinner has ever been. And so were you. But Jesus called me to salvation. So let the gracious love of Jesus settle, friends, deeply in your heart. Not only does he look at you long with saving purpose, and not only does he have great plans for your life, it is all about the grace of Jesus.
Here's Levi. He's one day old. He is one day old in his rebirth, and he's already discipling his friends. Now that ought to encourage you. You don't need to be in church for a long time. You don't need to really grow mature. You don't need to know a whole lot about the Bible before you can begin impacting your friends and your peers and the non-believers in your life. It starts day one. And I'm gonna show you how to do that in a few minutes. Let me get to number two. The call of Jesus brings objection. It almost always does. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, you need to know a little bit about Pharisees. So Pharisees were Jewish pastors, okay? Of all of the different groups of the Jewish spiritual leaders, Pharisees were both loved the most and feared the most. Because you can never, ever live up to their expectations. They were called the separate ones. That's a nickname. If you're writing down notes, write that down. They were called the separate ones. Why? Because they continually distanced themselves from anything or anyone that they would look down their nose at and say, that's an impure person. That's a morally not fit person. God can't possibly love them. Therefore, I will distance myself from them. They were called the separate ones. They would not even allow their robes to touch a tax collector of truth. Have you ever felt the way that Mark Twain once said? He said this, having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. Now look at that quote for a moment. Have you, I, I felt this way. I'm not supposed to say that as a pastor, I don't think. But I felt this way. There's something so refreshing. There's something so nice to be around non-believers. They just who they are, who they are. And this is often how people can get when they get saved and when they come into the church, they become the separate ones. They feel like they're a little bit above and they distance themselves from those who are non-believers. It ought to not be that way. You know, a few weeks ago, actually it was uh, two months ago now, a month and a half ago, uh, I went on a motorcycle trip and I, I, asked, I actually had asked some of you to be praying for me. And so I want to report in how that trip went. I went on a motorcycle trip with uh, four other guys, so there's five of us, went to West Virginia, and the first night that we're sitting around the campfire, the most recent addition to our group, I'd only met him twice, around the campfire, who knew I was a pastor, said to me, with all, everybody around the campfire, he goes, well, you know I'm an atheist, right? And I said, I did not know you were an atheist. And I said, why? Why are you an atheist? I said, that's interesting. Why are you an atheist? And then he began to unpack his story and tacked on another title. I'm an atheist and an anarchist. Doesn't really enjoy the government's rule and the way that they are ruling. He would like to put, invest the authority and power to rule within the local community. So he's a, an atheist and he's an anarchist. And while we are, uh, the, first, the first day that we're together on this trip, he and I have a bit of an argument. 
not anything about that. I hadn't learned this yet. This is on the motorcycle ride. We have a bit of an argument. He did something that was not really very safe for the group. And I reminded him of that. And he got pretty angry and said, well, then I'm going to go home tomorrow. I said, well, we don't want you to go home. We just want you to be safe. We all like to go home, not in a body bag. So let's ride safely together. Well, we worked through that. Then he tells me he's an atheist anarchist. And then he asked me around the campfire in front of everybody. He goes right straight, looking right straight at me. He goes, well, I, I need to ask you a question then. I go, well, you can ask anything you want. And I'll do the very best I can to answer it. He goes, if I refuse to bow my knees to Jesus Christ, is God going to throw me into hell? Now, that's not an easy question. It's actually a question with a wonderful answer, but it's not an easy question. And as I answered it, I won't tell you in this message how I answered that, that's for another message, but as I answered it, he got eerily quiet. And at the last evening of our four, three night, four day, the third evening, at the last evening, right before we went to bed, he comes up, he's six foot one, big burly biker with a beard that goes down in the middle of his stomach, comes up to me, puts his arms out and engulfs me in a hug. Says, man, I love you. I so appreciate our talks. Now listen, why do we distance ourselves with non-believers? Why are we so afraid to love and to share the hope that we have? They want to hear it almost always, and we can share it in a way that is winsome, that is attractive, that is beautiful. And we can love behind our words in a way that they say, well, I'm not ready to accept your message, but I'm ready to accept the messenger. That's Jesus. That's Jesus perfectly. That's not the Pharisees, the separate ones. Yet the very people who would listen to the good news of the gospel are often the ones on the outside of society's standards. Let me say it again. The ones who would often listen to the good news of the gospel will typically be on the outside of society's standards. So who, if not us, church, will go and love them and show them the way to eternal life. And it begs you and I to ask a question. Let's be utterly honest with this. Do you love non-believers? Now notice what I'm not asking you. Do you move towards non-believers because you want to share the gospel with them? All right, well, that's, you need to do that. I need to do that. But I'm asking a different question. Do you love non-believers? Do you truly, authentically love them? Well, Jesus did. And he responded to those Pharisees with what is going to provide for us our third point. The call of Jesus brings hope to sinners. Look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
If you've been here the last several weeks or listening online, you no doubt are learning that the Lord saying to Levi, follow me, had great significance in that day. Let me remind you very briefly what was going on. Every Jewish child by the age of six enrolled in school, equivalent to our elementary school, and they would stay there, boys and girls, until age 10. Believe it or not, Jewish girls were two to four years now away from being married and having children. They did not go on to the second level of school. They went home where they learned from their mothers how to be a mom, how to have a family. The boys, if they were good students, went on until they were about 15 to 16. And they would study the next level of the word of God. Now, at 16 years old, almost all male students in Israel were done with their education and they went home and they learned their father's trade and they basically worked with their dad and one day took it over but for the very best and most exceptional male Jewish boys they would go to a rabbi what was called that time a Torah teacher they became popularly known as rabbis around AD 70 but at that time they would go to a Torah teacher and they would they would go to that Torah teacher and they would ask can I be your Talmud a Talmud is a word for disciple which means a learner the Torah teacher would subject that male student to an unbelievably difficult and rigorous test. And if that student passed, he would hear three words in English, two words in the Hebrew or Aramaic. The three words in the English would be, come follow me. In other words, you could be my Talmud, you could be my disciple. Here's what Jesus did. Now, this is going to blow your mind. It ought to. Jesus reversed the direction. Almost no rabbi did this. He didn't accept anybody that came to him. In fact, everybody that kept coming to him, he would tell them, unless you will hate your mother and father and brother and sister more than me, you cannot be my disciple. And that means in the Greek, unless you love me more than them, not with a malevolent hatred, unless you love them less, you cannot be my disciple. Or let the dead bury their dead. Or pick up your cross and deny yourself daily if you want to be my disciple. He kept turning people away. And then he would go to the ones that the Father told him to call. The ones whose names were called before the foundation of the earth. And he would walk up to them and he would say, follow me. And the call of God, friends, is such that it turns the disposition of the person who receives it to where they can only imagine one thing. Yes. Yes. Now, I want you to hear this. If you are a Christian, you received at just the right moment that God designed his call that was given that was decided before the foundation of the earth. 
And when you received it, let me tell you what did not happen. There was not a light versus dark battle. You know, like you go into a dark room and you flip the light switch on and all of a sudden the light and the darkness are, you know, they're wrestling one another and one seems to gain the upper hand and then it gets beat. No, that never happens. You go into a dark room, you flip the switch, the darkness is instantly eradicated. When the call of God comes onto a sinner's heart, it changes, called regeneration, it changes their internal disposition. It brings them alive so that they desire to say yes. There is no one who has received the irrevocable call of God that has said no to him. And no one comes kicking and screaming into salvation. Their hearts are changed. This is what happens with Levi. Jesus called this small mokes to follow him and Levi leaving everything immediately rose and followed him. All right, now here's what I've done so far. We're coming, we're gonna land the plane. What I've done so far is I've given you some backdrop on a Jewish tax collector and located for you exactly who Levi was by way of a career what he abandoned, what he forsook, what he took up, and what he leaves. And then I've given you some theology behind the call of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to close and I'm going to end with just a few thoughts. How do we apply these truths, all right? And how do we get this practical? Well, ultimately, you're going to need to be the one that decides how to do that. Let me just give you some pump priming ideas. Number one, have you ever... Have you ever invited your non-believing family and friends to celebrate your salvation? Have you ever held a party to celebrate Jesus and specifically invited your non-believing friends, your coworkers, your classmates, and your family to it? And some of us are going to go, I can never do that. Why? Why could you not? Here's a Christian, or here's rather a Jewish tax collector, one day into his salvation, that in front of all of his peers, introduced them to Jesus. Why could we not do that? Wouldn't that not be amazing if we're beginning to hear, you know what, I had a party. I had a barbecue. And I invited every non-believing person I could. And you know what? During that party, I stood up and shared my testimony. I wanted them to hear about Jesus who saved my life. Why can you not do that? And honestly, who, who would say no to coming? And who would be upset if you did? Almost nobody. You could be a witness for Jesus. You see, the call of Jesus, here's the second thing I want to tell you how to apply this. The call of Jesus is an unexpected grace. It's always an unexpected grace. Not one person has ever been saved like you see a rainstorm coming. You know, you're getting closer. I'm about there. I'm about to, let, you know, to give my life to Jesus no, that's, no one's been saved that way. It's an unexpected grace. You did not get your life cleaned up. 
You did not do enough good things where all of a sudden the sun broke through the clouds and shined on you. Now, finally, God says, I'll save you because you finally got your act together. That said no one ever. It just doesn't happen like that. It's an unexpected grace. We are saved while we are yet sinners. We are saved when we wanted nothing to do with God. Even if you're religious, you don't want Jesus, the Lord and Savior of your life. You just want a morally good life. No one gets saved expecting it. It comes out of nowhere and it's grace. Well, let me press this in a little bit more. None of the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where this story can be found, the calling of Levi, do they ever record him saying a word? Have you not yet noticed that? It is conspicuously absent. Peter, Peter said something. Isaiah said something, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And Levi says nothing. The inference is he's utterly shocked. He is surprised by the grace of Jesus. Not one Pharisee, not one Torah teacher would ever have invited him to be their disciple, much less even talked with him. And I want you to think of it a little bit more because Levi didn't sell his franchise. Levi didn't give his money away. Levi didn't forsake his wealth and then was chosen by Jesus. That's not how it works. Jesus chose Levi and it created such a change in his heart that he wanted nothing more than Jesus. See, salvation is always by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And not one of us has ever deserved salvation. It is a shocking act of God's grace. So here's your application number two. When's the last time that you have fallen on your face in absolute surrender and gratitude and praise and worship that Jesus called you? even when you didn't even want them. When's the last time? When's the last time the grace of Jesus has gripped you, knocked you on your knees, maybe your face, and all you could do is call out praise to your wonderful Savior? My own life and the lives of so many people that I work with, it's been a very long time. We've gotten really used to the grace of God. It doesn't surprise us anymore. You know what I found? I have found if that's you, then you're not sharing the gospel with the unbelievers. Because every time you do, you remember again the undeserving grace that shocked and surprised you. It's no wonder that Amy Carmichael wrote in a poem, I hear him call, come follow. That was all. My gold grew dim, my heart went after him, I rose and followed. That was all. Would you not follow if you heard him call? Well, the tires in the plane are about to touch down and I'm only gonna do one more thing and I, I think it's really important because I can't 
take for granted that everybody watching this sermon online and everybody here right now has received that call from Jesus, has left everything and followed him, has surrendered to him, has had that new desire, that new nature called by a new name, part of a new family and with a new heart, with the spirit of God in you. I can't take for granted you've done that, you've received that. So let me land the plane this way. Do you understand, even if you are a Christian, and I'm speaking to me as well as to you, do you understand you did not deserve to be saved? You did not earn it. You did not live in such a way as God said, well, of course I'm gonna give you salvation. In fact, you and I and everybody on this planet has done the exact opposite. You have rebelled against your creator. I have too. We have said no to God. We have said an artificial throne is good enough for me. I will sit on it and I will rule my world and manage my life. And I don't need you, God, to monkey up the process. We've all said this. Oh, you can put it in your own words, but we've all said this. And maybe you still are right there. Can you see the eyes of Jesus staring at you? Oh, <laughs> Levi did. Can you see him looking at you with love? with grace, not judgment, not anger, not like some unable to please father. No, he loves you with grace. Meaning that while you don't deserve it, he knows it, he's willing to give it. And what's the it? It's salvation, it's life, it's purpose, it's joy, it's peace, it's favor, it's a new family, it's eternal life. All of that is bound up in the word it. And he's looking at you, do you feel it? And do you feel a call? Do you feel the call that says, leave it and follow me? Leave it and follow me. And I will tell you how to discern when the eyes of Jesus of grace are looking at you and the call of God is coming to you, I will tell you how you discern it. There will be nothing in your heart that will say no. You will want it and you will see Jesus high and lifted up on a cross who joy for the joy set before him underwent the wrath of his father, the pain of the crucifixion, the separation of his father, all because it was necessary in the only way to save you. And he gladly did it. Will you respond to that? All right, I can hear an objection and then I'm gonna land the plane. Well, I've been in church, I've heard this all my life, but have you heard the call of Jesus? Well, that is so different than hearing a Sunday school lesson or a sermon from a pulpit. Have you heard 
the call of Jesus. And did you say yes? That's how I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we're going to sing one more song in just a moment, and that song is going to so focus on Jesus. But Lord, before we sing it, I would ask, Father, that for every person in this sanctuary, every person watching this online, Lord, who was called before the foundation of the earth, Lord, that they would hear that call. They would see the eyes of Jesus staring at them with grace and love. And they would hear and feel and sense your invitation into life. And Lord, that would so grip their hearts that everything in them would shift. And there would be no longer any ability to say no, not because they're forced, not because they're compelled, because there's no greater desire in them than to follow you, their Lord and Savior. Father, would that call be sent out? And would they respond to you and enjoy peace, and life, a new heart, a new created being inwardly, new desires, a new purpose, the power of the Spirit in them to live out this eternal life that you will give. And Father, for those of us who are Christians already, Lord, let us hold the party. Let us hold the celebration and invite our non-believing friends to it and tell them what you have done for us. And may we remember again with fresh eyes how unexpected your grace really was and how undeserved it is. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. And as we sing this song, would our hearts, Lord, match up with our lips and may we sing from deep down within in Jesus name. Amen. <laughs>